0: Matthew chapter 1, and this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 17. Let me pray for us first. Father, we are thankful that You have loved us so much, that You sent Your Son into this world to live and to die For those of us that are unworthy, and you have given us this living word that we might hear from you, our living God, we're thankful that this word is living. Would you, our living God, by your living spirit, according to this living word, apply it to our beating hearts and our stirring minds today? May we receive it with thanksgiving and with joy and with gladness that we have such a God who lives with us, who dwells with us, and who speaks to us. In Christ's name, amen. This morning we uh, begin a new book of the Bible. For those of you that are new to URC, we tend to walk through a book of the Bible and preach through a book of the Bible, though sometimes we may do a series here or there. But preaching through a book of the Bible helps. Uh, It helps to know the context of the passage that we're in. It also helps to keep the preacher honest so he doesn't skip over things he doesn't want to preach uh, and keeps him from hobby horses. So we are going to begin the Gospel of Matthew. I wanted as... uh, as I start this tenure here as your senior pastor to go through a gospel. And uh, Matthew is what we're going to do together, and it's my hope that as we go through the gospel of Matthew that we would together see more of Christ and that we would together come to know Christ more and that together we would delight in Christ more. Matthew uh, is probably the most neglected of the Gospels in our day and age. Uh, Mark is short and it's pithy, and uh, so many preach for the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we often turn to it and know it probably the best. Uh, The Gospel of Luke is filled with all these details and with the parables that we love, and uh, so we often gravitate towards the Gospel of Luke. And then there's John who is incredibly theological, and he is filled with emotion and passion, and it is that unique gospel, and so we often turn there. And Matthew, in our day and age, tends to be a little more neglected. Uh, And yet, would it surprise you to know that the gospel of Matthew in the early church was the most quoted of all the gospels? And in the first three centuries of the church, the church fathers quoted the gospel of Matthew more than any other book in their writings. It was really the gospel of the early church, so much so that one scholar I was reading this week said this. He said, it is a fact that mainstream Christianity was from the early second century on to a great extent, Mathean Christianity. It is the first book in the New Testament and it was the gospel that dominated the early church, and uh, much through the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and, uh, but maybe in our time, maybe a little more neglected as a gospel. So we're going to spend these next weeks going through the Gospel of Matthew. I would encourage you to, to read through it. Uh, I've read through it a number of times now, just in a sitting. It'll take you probably an hour and 15 minutes. Sit down, an hour and 20 minutes, maybe an hour and a half. Just sit down and read through the book. Think on it. Pray through it, meditate on it. I asked Becky, our uh, church secretary, to buy some of these for you. They're out there on the book stand. These little, the Gospel according to Matthew. You know, they stole the idea from Jonathan Edwards, my great hero of the faith, where Jonathan Edwards he took his Bible and he sewed blank pages in between every page of the Bible so he could take notes. And I think he is getting no royalties on this. I am pretty sure. And yet they took the Gospel of Matthew and put a blank page in after every page of the Bible so that you could just take notes. Good, good little thing to do. So I started doing that as I've been working my way through the Gospel of Matthew. But this morning uh, we are going to read through verses 1 through 17 this genealogy uh, that Matthew provides at the beginning. And Andrew Peterson, as many of you know, has that wonderful Matthew begat song where he sings through this, and as he says, listen very closely, I don't want to sing this again. So, listen very closely, I don't want to read this again. It says the holy and Word of God, Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shehtiel, and Shehtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And though the grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's a young woman lying in a bed at a hotel, and she woke up alone. And She woke up, and she reached over to flip on the light on the light stand that was next to her bed, and she was fumbling for the light stand, and She pressed the button that turns on the light, and the light in the room flickered on, and as it did, she withdrew her hand, and as she withdrew her hand from that light stand, it it grazed across the top of the book that was sitting in front of that light. And the lights now being on, she decided to take a look at what that book was, and so she turned over on her side, and she picked up the book with her hand, and a good Gideon had put a Bible there on the lampstand. And she thought to herself, I, I haven't opened the Bible since I was a kid. She knew the Bible. She knew of it. She had often gone to Sunday school. Her grandmother had taken her to Sunday school and church as a kid, and she remembered being in Sunday school and, and having to memorize the books of the Bible in order. And she thought, well... Maybe after all the fear she had been suffering under recently and sorrow and depression and and guilt over the last months and the last years and even the last night, she thought maybe it would be helpful to read a little bit of the Bible. So she grabbed the Bible and she knew that she didn't want to flip to the Old Testament. She knew there was an Old Testament, she knew there was a New Testament, and she didn't want anything to do with all those sacrifices and prophecies and, and prophets of the Old Testament. So she thought she would find her way to the New Testament. And so she opened it up, and there was 1 John, and there was Galatians, and there was Romans, and there was Acts, and she thought, I might as well start at the beginning of the New Testament. And so she flips open to the Gospel of Matthew, and she begins to read, and this is what it is, this, a genealogy of Old Testament names. This is how the Gospel of Matthew begins. This is how the entire New Testament begins by God's ordination, this old list of Old Testament names, one after another, and they seem so distant, and and what does it really matter? It's an odd beginning to a book, isn't it, to begin not only a book this way, but the entire New Testament these names that sound so foreign, we don't even know how to pronounce half of them. Some of them aren't even in the Old Testament Scriptures. Most of us don't like our own family tree, let alone read somebody else's family tree. Here it is at the beginning. But this genealogy, it's all important. Because it's proof of the promises of God that are fulfilled. Everything that this woman needed, it, it is right here. What she needed, or or better way of saying it, who she needed is right here. And she would do well to, to read through it and to understand it. The Old Testament is not the Jewish book, and the New Testament is the Christian book. both Testaments are Christian. If you're following the news in the evangelical world at all this week, I would say this, we do not need to unhitch the Old Testament from our faith. We lose our faith if we unhitch the Old Testament from our faith. It ceases to be. Because we have in the New Testament... What is found in seed form in the Old Testament. What is promised in the Old Testament is realized and perfected and brought to fulfillment in the New Testament. So, if someone asks, what is is this book about? We might say to them, well, let me rephrase your question. It isn't, what is this book about? A better question would be, who is this book about? And I can answer that question. It's very simple. This book is about Jesus. The entire thing from beginning to end is about Jesus. I say, well, I I know the Gospels are about Jesus. That is His life and His death and His burial and His resurrection. It's clear the Gospels are about Jesus. And we would say, no, 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 no. All the Scriptures are about Jesus. This is a Christian book from beginning to end. Every single passage in Scripture is either informing us of our need of a Savior, the promise of the Savior, a type of the Savior, the person of the Savior, the ministry of the Savior, or life in the Savior. It's all about Him. A promised royal Redeemer sent to save sinners. And that's what this woman needs. And so, Matthew begins this way. Can't understand the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus apart from the Old Testament. So Matthew begins this way. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he gives the genealogy of Christ to then flesh out what he means by this. He, he starts in the Old Testament to begin the New Testament so that we might understand that the promised Redeemer of the Testaments has come. This is Him. Matthew, He begins with two words. In Greek, it's the word biblos, which is book or record there as our ESV translates it, the book, the biblos of the geneseos, which the ESV, our pew Bible, translates as genealogy here. So, the book of the genealogy. But I think it's even more likely that these two opening words refer to the, the record of the origins. So, the book or the record, the record of the origins. And Matthew is providing an introduction in these opening chapters to the entire gospel. He, he's presenting a kind of these are the origins of Jesus Christ. He's, yes, going to go through the virgin birth and he's going to go through the Magi visiting, and he's going to go through Christ needing to flee down to Egypt, but He begins with His origins in the Old Testament so that you and I might know who He is and what it is that He fulfills. So Matthew begins in verse 1 with telling us that Jesus is the Son of David. He's the Son of David. His title, in fact, is how he structures the entire genealogy. He is focusing the entire genealogy here in verses 1 through 17 upon the fact that that Jesus comes from the line of David. He wants the reader to know that he is in that kingly line. So that's what we first must understand that Jesus is the son of David and what that means. This entire genealogy, if you look at it in verses 1 through 17, it's all organized based upon David there in verse 7 and David, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So he says there are 14 generations there in verse 17, Abraham to David, then there are 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, and then 14 generations from the deportation of Babylon to uh, the Christ who comes into this world. Each is 14 generations, all centered upon David. And yet, what is interesting is that Matthew does not include all the generations that are there in the family tree of Jesus. He excludes some of the names. Some of the people that were in the line of Jesus are not here. We don't see Joash, we don't see Amaziah, they just aren't listed. And His third grouping of the 14 that begins there in verse 12, that covers 500 years. So, there's no way that that covers every single person in that line, in that part of Jesus' genealogy. This may seem a little odd to us, but it wasn't uncommon for, for Jewish writers to arrange genealogies in some way that they could remember them, that there was a way to memorize them. And so, that is Matthew's concern here is that He just wants us to know in a summary fashion that Jesus is of the royal line of David, and so He gives these kind of 14, 14, 14 so that it's memorable. There's a way of memorizing it before Andrew Peterson came along and put it all to song. It may even be that by these groupings of 14, Matthew is focusing on David in yet another way, uh, why is it fourteen that that Matthew chooses? Why didn't he choose twenty generations, or why didn't he choose fifteen, or, or why didn't he choose seven? Or some will say, well, no, nobody's quite sure. But some will say, well, look, that there are there are three fourteens, and so really that is six groups of seven, and seven being the perfect number, and. And there are six of them, which shows that it's moving forward, and so it is, it's coming to its culmination in Jesus, six groups of 14. But I think, and most scholars think, the simplest answer is the best, though it seems a little strange and foreign to us, is that in Hebrew and in many of the ancient uh, languages in the ancient world, different letters stood for different numbers. And so there was a numeric value to each letter. And and again, this is a way probably that Matthew is focusing us upon David. If you take David's name in the Hebrew, it would have been three letters. It would have been D, V, D, because there weren't, cons- there weren't vowels that they would have fixed to the Hebrew letters until much later. And in Hebrew, that D is the number four and V is the number six. And so you have four plus six, which is ten, plus another four. And so it's 14, and so it's just another way to memorize. David, 14, 14 generations. Help me to remember the 14 generations. And so he lists them out. But the first point of the genealogy, whether that is what he is doing or not, is very clear. Jesus belonged to the royal line of David. Why is this so important to understand? Because every God-fearing Jew knew that the Messiah must come from the line of David. In 2 Samuel 7, God enters into a covenant with David. And there, in the covenant that He enters into with David, He says to David that there shall be a son of His that shall sit upon the throne forever. He shall have a reign that has no end. He shall never be kicked off of the throne. Solomon didn't do that, and neither did Rehoboam or Abijah or Asaph, as all of these different kings are listed here in this genealogy. They didn't fulfill Psalm 2, where it says that his his reign is to reach to the ends of the earth. All the nations are to be his heritage. They all failed in their own way. They all died, or they were supplanted. And yet, every God-fearing Jew knew. They knew that the Messiah, the one who would reign, had to come from the line of David because God had promised it to David. God had covenanted Himself with him and said, you will have a son that will reign forever. And so, it appears Matthew is tracing that kind of legal royal line from Jesus back on to David. Say this is one who is descended from David. The son of David, this heir of David that would establish the throne of Israel once again, that would, was promised to defeat all the enemies of God's people. He would usher in healing into the land, and as He ushered healing into the land, He would also usher in healing for individual people. It restore them. Isaiah prophesied that he would have the government upon his shoulders and be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And Matthew is declaring right out of the gate. Jesus Christ is the Son of David. He's the fulfillment of this promise. You don't have to keep looking. He's come. He's here. And we take that for granted. Probably as I read it this morning, our eyes glanced over it and thought very little about it. But I imagine Jews during this time, uh, and for hundreds of years, centuries before this, must have wondered, they must have wondered, would this son of David, this promise of God to David actually be fulfilled? Because they had become so wicked, they had become so evil, You think about this line and all of these names that are listed here and these kings that are listed, and about half of them are, are righteous, good men. You have David. You know, you have Uzziah here. You have Hezekiah. They're righteous men, and yet every one of them fallen, every one of them sinful. David sins with Bathsheba and kills her husband Uriah, and Matthew is making that very clear. He wants us to remember that, where he says, look, she was the wife of Uriah. You think of someone like Uzziah there, who was righteous until the very end of his life. When he decides to go into the temple, he's a little full of himself, and so he offers a sacrifice to the Lord as if he was a priest. And you have Hezekiah here, who is really a good king and a very righteous king, and yet he also gets proud and gets full of himself. And so he takes the Babylonians and he takes others to come in and look at all the treasures that the Lord had given to him. And that will eventually lead to the deportation and to the exile. But that's the best among the number. And they're weak and they're frail and they're sinful. Half of these men are just downright wicked. Think about Ahaz here, who who sacrificed his own son on an altar to a foreign god. Sacrificed his own son as the king of Israel. And he's not even the worst. (laughs) You have Manasseh listed here who in 2 Kings 21, the writer of Kings will go on for nine verses just listing atrocity after atrocity that Manasseh commits. To the point that he will say in the text that Manasseh actually did more evil and wickedness in the land than all the pagan nations that dwelled in the land before Israel got there. It's downright evil. So God takes His very people, His chosen people, and He takes them into captivity. They're dragged from their homes, and they're led to a foreign land. As Matthew details here, he he notes this is a major break in the nation of Israel after the, up to the deportation, then after the deportation to Babylon, He takes them. God has this foreign nation, this pagan nation, take His people who are wicked and evil and carry them off, steal them from their homes, take them to a foreign land and just disperse them. And they must have thought, will these promises that God made ever come to fruition? Or is his judgment so severe? Is it so great, our wickedness so great, that his grace cannot be manifest here? That he's turned his back on us, that he's abandoned us, that we're lost forever. And Matthew is telling you and I at the very beginning of this gospel that God fulfills every single one of His promises. Everyone. Without fail. Here He is, Matthew is saying. The one promised by God. The one that He promised to David would sit enthroned and vanquish all his and our enemies. But not just that, not just would He conquer our enemies, but that He would extend mercy to us, He would heal us. It's interesting, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew on nine separate occasions, Jesus will be called the Son of David. And I love that the vast majority of those are from people that we would count as destitute and on the fringe and needy. So the two blind men that cry out, O son of David, what do they say? They say, have mercy on us. They knew the promise. Or the Canaanite woman who's not even a Jew and lives in a neighboring region and yet she knows the promise. So she cries out, O Lord, O Son of David, have mercy on me. He's the one who comes, that vanquishes all of our foes, ushers in peace, and dispenses mercy to his people. And Matthew's saying, He's come. He's come is not content to highlight just the promise to David. He takes us all the way back to Abraham. So second, Jesus is also the son of Abraham. As he begins the genealogy in verse 2, he says the book of the genealogy or the origins of the beginnings of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he begins the genealogy in verse 2. He begins with Abraham, the father of Isaac. Abraham, that great Jew, the ideal Jew, the father of the nation. Remember the Pharisees saying to Jesus, we are sons of Abraham? And Jesus is the son of Abraham. What does that mean? In Genesis 12, God called Abraham, Abram, who we would later rename Abraham from the era of the Chaldees. And you remember when He calls him from the era of the Chaldees, He tells him that He is giving him this promised land. And he says to Abraham, he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and I am going to bless you. But then he says, through you, I am going to bless all the nations of the earth. Through you, Abraham, through your descendant.' And so he makes this promise to Abraham and Abraham's offspring, Through them, through him, the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul picks this up in Galatians 3.16, and he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. And Paul is telling us, just as Matthew is alluding to here, that the promise to Abraham that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. That offspring is the promise of Christ. That Christ would bless all the nations to the very ends of the earth. Paul can say in the third chapter of Galatians, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you're Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you are united to Christ, you're now in this line that Matthew has set up here. You're, you're tied to Abraham. You are actually a son of Abraham by virtue of your being in Christ. This promised royal redeemer. Matthew is saying is the son of David who came to reign on the throne of Israel forever and ever, but he is also the son of Abraham, promised to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth so that in him Jew and Gentile are made one. We are all made children of Abraham by faith. One people. Saved to one people to one God. So it's as if Matthew is beginning this gospel and he's saying, remember these promises of God. Remember his promise to David. Remember his promise to Abraham. He's fulfilled them. He's fulfilled it. It's actually one singular promise. There is one who shall sit on the throne and shall vanquish all of our enemies. And then He gathers all the nations in under Himself, and He unites them. Makes them one as His church, as the new Israel, as His people. Here is the Savior of sinners, sinners from every nation. He doesn't just come for Jews, but for all people. As we look through this genealogy, Matthew is trying to make that clear. He goes on through the legal royal line through David, and yet he mentions four women in this genealogy. Why they wouldn't have had any legal right to the throne? Well, you look at these four women, and three of them are non-Israelites. You have Rahab, who was a Canaanite, and you have Ruth, who was a Moabite, and you have Bathsheba, who married a Hittite, and so either was a Hittite herself or who was considered a Hittite. They are all non-Jews. They're all Gentiles. Your offspring, singular, shall be a blessing to all the nations, was the promise. He shall inherit the ends of the earth, was the promise. And Matthew is saying, look, Jesus has Gentiles as branches in His family tree. By blood. And He's going to tell us throughout this book that He now has branch, Gentile branches in His family tree that are united to Him by faith that come after Him. Some think the book of Matthew was written to Jews. Uh, that may be the case. But if He was, He was clearly writing this to Jews to in part, encourage them to look outside the community of the Jews and to look at the Gentiles around them. Because it is absolutely no mistake that Matthew begins this book with highlighting the promise made to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations, and then Matthew ends the book with saying, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's the book end. This is a gospel for all people even as He worked it out in His promises to Israel, and He's come. Here in one person, the promised Son of David and the Son of Abraham, the Christ. You think through this book, and you think it all being about Christ and Matthew kind of setting the stage for that and leading us through that, and He will show prophecy after prophecy being fulfilled in this gospel. You know, from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve have sinned against the Lord and God is in the midst of cursing the woman and the man and the ground and the serpent, in the very midst of that, He makes a promise, that covenant promise. We call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first mention of it, where he says that there shall be the seed that is born of the woman. Seed, singular, that shall be born of the woman. that shall crush the head of the serpent. And it's a promise. It's a promise of Christ at the very beginning, way back in the garden, in the midst of cursing them. About those Jews and the deportation and the exile and maybe doubting whether God's mercy and grace was sufficient for all of their wickedness. And you think back to Genesis 3 and you think everything that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, they had fellowship with God, they walked with Him in the cool of the day, and yet they chose to rebel against Him and commit cosmic rebellion and seek to dethrone Him, and cast Him off of His throne. And so, He's cursing them. But Isn't it absolutely flabbergasting that in the midst of cursing them, He offers them the promise of grace? The promise is there. I'm sending a Redeemer. Yeah, there are consequences for your sin, but I'm sending a Redeemer. And all of the rest of the Scriptures from Genesis 3.15 all the way to this moment in the Gospel of Matthew is but the unfolding of that promise. It's just this promise, this this red ribbon that runs all the way through the Old Testament Scriptures that this Savior, this, this royal Redeemer is coming. And so He promises to Noah in covenant that He shall not curse the earth again like that. He makes this promise to Abraham that he shall be a blessing to all the nations one coming forth from him. He makes this promise to David that he shall have one that always reigns upon the throne. Before that, he makes promises to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, which point forward to Christ. And then he makes the promises of the new covenant there in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And all of that is finally realized in the coming of this one. This royal redeemer who is the son of David and the son of Abraham. All this book is pointing to him. That's why Matthew begins the book this way, this book of the origins of Jesus Christ. This one who was to come anointed with strength and power and ability to deliver and to help the people of God, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the fulfillment of the promise to David, to ultimately save his people. That's what his name means, right? Jesus. A Hebrew name Joshua. This is the Greek version of it. The Lord is salvation. The Lord saves. The angel said, you shall name him Jesus. Because he shall save his people from their sins. It's interesting, isn't it, that most genealogies we trace back our ancestors to someone that we hope is of renown or fame or significance. So every Rockefeller is trying to find John D. in their line, or every Lincoln's trying to find Abraham, or Every Einstein's trying to find some connection to Albert. Every Washington to George. And yet this genealogy is flipped on its head. This is the one who surpasses in significance and greatness and consequence all who preceded him. And all of them but pointed to either the need for him or were but a type of him pointing forward to his fulfillment. This is the promised royal Redeemer, born to save. So what do we learn from these verses? A few things. First, they can trust God to keep His promises. He promised to send a Redeemer. He promised to bless the nations through Abraham. He promised to bless David and put one on the throne from him that would reign forever. And He did. He did. And He does. Every generation is prone to question the promises of God, and every one of us as individuals, when we go through circumstances, are prone to question the promises of God. They will never leave you nor forsake you. It doesn't feel like that all the time. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. and I will give you rest. Not might. Not can, but I will. It doesn't always feel like it. So, Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And yet we can think, has, has God forgotten me? Has He abandoned me? Is He blind to the struggle I'm going through today? Psalm 121, He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He will keep us from all evil. He will keep our very life. Not let your foot be moved. He guards your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. All promises. And they're yours, Christian. God never ceases to fulfill His promises. Every promise He has ever uttered, ever given in these pages, comes to fruition. He always looks upon His people with His promises in mind. So you can trust Him when you're struggling, you look through the scriptures and you find the promises of God. And you start praying them. And you run to them. And then you rest in them. Because they're yours. Second, let us remember Christ is the son of David who vanquishes all our foes and at the same time provides all healing for his people. So whatever our pain, whatever our struggle, whatever our trial, whatever our suffering, it is to Him that we turn. We look to Him. We we call out to Him. We trust in Him. It's not just that He sat on the throne for a moment, but that He sits on the throne now and forevermore. That's the promise. There is nothing that's outside of His control, nothing that's outside His purview, nothing that outflanks Him, nothing that can outdo Him, nothing that can unseat Him. There is no power so great that it even comes close to rivaling Him. He's the son of David, and so you run to Him. But He's also the son of Abraham, this one who... Came forward to bless all the nations. And so there's no provincialism here. That is unchristian. He came to seek male and female, slave and free, barbar- barbarian and Scythian, Jew and Greek. This is a gospel for the nation. So we proclaim it to the nations. This is a message for the world, for lost sinners in every corner and part of the world, for every single person. And so we proclaim him, the son of Abraham. And lastly, do not neglect the Old Testament, even as you revel in the New Testament. Your faith will be impoverished as a Christian if you don't know the promises of the Old Testament. About that woman laying in that hotel room. She would quickly go through these verses and think very little about Jesus being the son of David, the son of Abraham, and that God sustained this entire line, though it was wicked. Though it was evil, though it was filled with sinners and frail and weak men and women, he sustained that line wise so that he might fulfill that promise that he made all the way back in Genesis 3.15. That he then solidified with Abraham and that he then sealed with David. And everything that she was wondering about. Every pain, every sorrow, every measure of guilt that she was weighed down with would have been answered just by reading the first two verses. The book of the genealogy, the record of the origins of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's what she needs. better say, that's who she needs. And so it's true of each of us. So as we go through the Gospel of Matthew over these next months, my hope is that we come to see Jesus more, we come to know Him more, and we come to delight in Him more. Let's pray together. Lord and our God, we do exalt You that You are a God of promises and a keeper of promises. We do pray that You would encourage our faith with the fact that You are a covenant-keeping God, who sent the royal Redeemer into the world to save sinners such as us. In Christ's name we pray, Amen.